You're listening to Nerdy Jobs, a podcast presented by NerdsOnEarth.com. The mission of Nerdy Jobs is to highlight both the creativity and the professionalism of those who are behind the nerdy things we love. This episode of Nerdy Jobs features an interview with fantasy author and editor Howard Andrew Jones. Hello, nerds. Welcome to Nerdy Jobs. This is our podcast where we talk about creators and just get a little behind-the-scenes look and the good work that they're doing, the the things that us nerds love. And today we are talking with Howard Andrew Jones, who is one of the authors that I read all the time through the Pathfinder Tales line. Um, and he goes back to some old school fantasy sword and sorcery stuff. So I'm really excited to talk to Andrew to Howard Andrew Jones. Pleasure to be here. Hey, thanks, Howard, for for being on. For uh, the interview, so the question that we ask everyone to start out is, give us a little bit of your your origin story. How did how did you become a nerd? I was bitten by a radioactive nerd. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, no, I guess I, I guess I was born that way. I, I'm a terrible artist, but when I was a kid, I used to draw lots and lots of pictures and then arrange them in story form. Um, and then pretty soon it became clear that I just wanted to be a storyteller. And then I was introduced to gaming. And then I was introduced to Star Trek, the original in rerun. Uh, and then I was introduced to Dungeons and Dragons when Advanced Dungeons and Dragons came out. And uh, uh, wow, the you know the next thing I knew, I was wanting to tell stories set in fantastic places, and I've been trying to do it ever since. Man, it it's really hard for me not to just go on a tangent and talk old school D and D. Well, I grew up playing it. I mean, junior high, um, there we were in the <laughs> in the back of the classroom drawing dungeons or rolling up characters. This is the thing attention in math class. Oh, man, I went through reams of grid paper. Yeah, yeah. All right, so I mentioned that I was introduced to you through the Pathfinder Tales line, which is, I, man, if, if folks don't know about that, it's just fun because it's just, you know, just a, a big world, a big fantasy setting, which is a lot of fun. But let's talk about your your own work, and particularly, I love that uh, you know a lot of historical fiction stuff. And so, my question is like, what's it like to um, to write something that resonates in the real world um, versus writing something that's full on Gonzo? Like, how do, how do you research your your personal work? Well, the uh, the first two novels I wrote were historical fantasy, so. It's probably a little bit different than writing straight fantasy. Um, they're sort of like a cross between the Arabian Nights and Sherlock Holmes, or, or someone else said it was like Indiana Jones crossed with a Sinbad movie. Um, because I wanted it set in in the real world, but with fantastic elements, I threw myself into research of uh, what the real world was like in like 7th and 8th century Arabia. Uh, and I didn't just do that for a single project, and it, it kind of added up bit by bit. I mean, I first started writing short stories, and I had to know a little, and then I'd write another short story, and I'd have to know, like, say, oh, what did uh, what did graveyards look like back then? Or then I'd write another short story, and I'd discover this. Well, after about four or five years of this, um, I learned more and more, and then I learned how much how ignorant I was, and I found other. I, I basically I geeked out on the Arabian Nights, sure, and the entire era, and. Um, and I had lots of fun doing it, and I had lots of fun writing it. 
And it is very different from writing Pathfinder, except that in a way you also have to research Pathfinder. Um, the, one of the differences is, of course, that if I have a question about something, I just contact one of the cool guys there at Paizo, and uh, if they can't answer the question, they'll hand me to someone who can. Yeah, phone, phone an editor. Yeah, and I couldn't really do that with Ancient Arabia. Um, I did make friends with a couple, of, uh, a couple of scholars who I was able to email occasionally if I really got stumped. Oh, that's great. Yeah, well, that was, you know, that's, that's one of the perks. It's like, oh, hey, I'm working on my second novel published by uh, St. Martin's. And, of course, they take you seriously then, right? <laughs> right. Uh, and then, then they email you back. You learn all kinds of cool stuff that way. Well, tell us a little bit about, you know, writing a novel. Like, what's the, what, what, just what's a rough time breakdown of, of your process? Oh, wow. Well, you know, I would like to be able to write one in um, two or three months. But usually it's more like six, really. Now, if you already know the characters, it can be a little bit easier. For instance, if you're writing a sequel. But uh, first sure. got to come up with who your characters are and how interesting they are and then who the villains are and what they want. And, um, and then you really got to create the setting, uh, which I've been doing for my newest series. It's going to come out in July. But otherwise, I've been researching settings, right? I was either researching Pathfinder or researching uh, Ancient Arabia. Um, and as you're doing that, you're kind of putting the structure together. Now, I have a few friends who are writers who just sort of make it up as they go uh, or have a really loose outline. But the more I've done this, I guess I'm working on novel number eight. Um, <laughs> novel number eight that's going to be published. That doesn't count all the ones that I have in a cabinet that I don't want anyone to see that I probably ought to burn. Um, the more I do this, the more structured I have to be so that I don't waste my time and go down wrong ends, because you really are trying to do it effectively and, and quickly. Um, I have many stories I wish to tell, and sometimes it's frustrating that I can't quite get it right, and I have to keep going back and revising and tweaking the dialogue and improving the characters. Um, but anyway, <laughs> once I have the outline done, uh, then I start uh, sketching in the dialogue, because I, I hear dialogue really easily, almost like a play. Uh -huh. various chapters, and then I, um, then I start stitching it together. I, I tend to write it in order for the most part. I know some people are capable of jumping around, but if I jump around too much, I create situations for myself where I don't follow the emotional flow and the, the changing character arcs, and then I'm creating extra work for myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so would, would that be the piece of advice you would give to newer, newer creators is – Learn to outline? No, I think the most important, that, that is true, yeah. Although it doesn't, there are very few absolutes. As long as you get to the top of the mountain, which is the end of the book or the end of the story, mm -hmm. I don't know that there's any, uh, don't do this. Um, I'll tell you one of the hardest lessons I learned was to know what every character wants before you start writing the scene. You're almost like a, a film or stage director, and you got to make sure you know everyone's motivation, and you, you if you were a film or stage director, you might talk with each actor. Okay, your motivation in this scene is you really need that Twinkie. Uh, your motivation is this scene is you got to stop your friend before he eats the radioactive Twinkie. Now go! Well, you need to know what your characters want. Otherwise, you might start a scene and, and some of the characters are just standing there not doing anything. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Now, now that's a writing process, but a lot of your work is editing and um you're best known for your Harold Lamb's 
um, editing his work, uh, which is some just good old school um, writing. Yeah, it's, it's some swashbuckling historical fiction from earlier in the century. And unlike uh, unlike almost all of his contemporaries, it does not sound dated. I mean, there's some stuff in there that it's a little bit old school, like uh, you don't get any in-your-face uh, uh, <laughs> gratuitous sex scenes, right? Yeah. But the pacing and the action are just top-notch, and they do not – it's not slow and boring. Uh-huh. Um, as far as editing him, I didn't really change many of his words, except I would change spellings to make them consistent from story to story. So Lamb was writing in these old pulp magazines from the 20s, and most of those stories of his were not reprinted. A few of them were. And I came upon them in high school, and I just thought they were fabulous. Uh, I couldn't stop reading them. And I was a fantasy reader, uh, so I was sort of surprised by how much I loved them. But I'd read by that point some of the Lankmar stories of Fawford and the Grey Mouser. And they kind of reminded me of that because it's these continuing stories about this uh, this heroic Cossack wandering through the wilds of uh, Asia in like the early, early 16, uh, late 16th, early 17th century. Anyway, um, I thought all of the good stories had been printed and I discovered no, that there were many, many more and they were only preserved in these ancient crumbling pulps. Pulp paper is named that for reasons. It's made from this cheap wood pulp and it just dis begins to disintegrate. So what I did is I love these stories so much, I kind of slowly tracked them down, and then I scanned them so that every time I handled them, they wouldn't fall apart. And in the process of editing them for University of Nebraska Press, what I did is I converted those scanned documents uh, into Word files via a process called Optical Character Recognition, or OCR, and then I would have to read through and uh, make sure that all of it transferred properly uh, because sometimes it wouldn't read every word correctly. And as I said, from story to story, year to year, word conventions were different. For instance, scimitar might not be spelled S-C-I-M-I-T-A-R all the time. It might have been spelled S-I-M uh, and, and, other, and other weird little quirks like that. Yeah. So, yeah, that wasn't a developmental editing process. That was more like a really intense proofreading process. Yeah, well, that's interesting because, you know, to most people – they feel that editing is simply catching typos, which just grossly understates what editing is. So talk to us about helping writers like capture the correct tone, structuring their content. So talk to the high-level work of an editor. Yeah, that's not to downplay what copy editors do because God knows we need them. And I, I began as a proofreader and a copy editor uh, in-house at uh, Macmillan Computer Publishing uh, in Indianapolis. And that's where I got some of my initial training, but then I, I – uh, also began to do developmental editing and project editing. And that's when you shape the course of the story. And you've got to give them advice. Okay, for instance, this character arc isn't working. I am bored. Uh, or uh, maybe these events aren't occurring in, a, in the right order. You need to reconfigure them. I don't know if you've ever seen a movie or read a book and you're, and you're suddenly thinking, now, why are the characters doing this? Mm -hmm. it, it could be that you weren't paying attention. But maybe it's because the author didn't give you a clear enough through line so that you don't remember why the characters are doing what they're doing. Or, or do you ever see, why is this character alone? It just feels like that character is tagging along for no particular reason, and they're really boring. Well, a good editor uh, would call the author out and offer suggestions to try and fix those things. 
But you've got to do it gently, of course. Right. Depending on the writer's ego. Some of them are really cool about it and are very open to whatever it takes to uh, make a story better. That's what they want. But some of them, admittedly, not as many as uh, you might think. At least the ones I've encountered have all been pretty cool. But occasionally encounter someone who's really sticky about something. Oh, no, I have to do this. It's got to be this way. Well, you'll be working with a lot of artists coming up because you have a new magazine. So Tales from the Magician's Skull, yeah. which is about the best title ever. <laughs> well, I can't take credit for that. That's uh, Joseph Goodman's title. Yeah. Uh, Joseph Goodman of Goodman Games, Dungeon Crawl Classics, right? But, but what's your editorial approach on, on Tales from the Magician's Skull? This sounds great. <laughs> well, I love sword and sorcery. Out of all fantasy types, I love sword and sorcery. Uh, I just mentioned Fafford and the Grey Mouser, but of course, Conan sure. and Cull and Solomon Cain. Now, some people might say, well, is Solomon Cain really sword and sorcery because it's historical fiction with fantasy in it? Well, you know, close enough. As long as it's, it's got that driving pace and, that, and the action and the sense of uh, mystery and horror and, and going to interesting places and doing fantastic things, that's, that's what the magazine is about. Uh, and as far as how I found the authors, Joseph found one of them, a great writer named Aaron Rudel, or Rudel, I don't actually know how his name's pronounced. And uh, the rest were people that I had been working with for years. I was either fans or friends or both with all of these people. Uh, and I met them because we've all been publishing in the, in the same short story magazines or uh, publishers or, or, or what have you. Well, let's, let's rewind just a, just a little bit, um, you know, Appendix N, which is this, you know, the famous um, reading list of Gary Gygax. It was in the back of the original Dungeon Master's Guide. Um, sure. I mean, all those those rich stories, that great those great sword and sorcery stories. Why do you think that nostalgia and all those wonderful pulps are resonating so much today? Well, I guess. You know, there's, there's a lot of good answers to that. I'll, I'll try and touch on several of them. Um, I think before Dungeons & Dragons, and I don't mean to sound critical of Dungeons & Dragons, but Dungeons & Dragons kind of codified everything, right? It set up uh, these templates. An elf is this way, a dwarf is that way, a hobbit is that way. Before that, it was all wide open. You could do whatever you wanted with it. You could bring your own interpretations more and weird interpretations in your own exotic settings. And I think that has a lot to do with it. Another bit is sort of a revolt against, um, well, sort of a prepackaged feel, but also a, a revolt against a big doorstop fantasy where things move slowly. The pulps did not move slowly. Breakneck pace, lots of action, weird world building surprises. Uh, and I think that's part of the appeal as well. And then you got to go back and think, where does it all come from? And I think it's kind of fun to see the roots of it all. No, but it's also, it's 2017, right? And so I, I love, like, I'm a hundred percent with you when it's like, Hey, back, back in the day, you know, an elf could have, could look as different ways, you know, there was different interpretations. But now there is an archetype for the way there, there are rules to these things. Um, mm -hmm. You know, someone would say, hey, the vampire ran into the room and shot laser beams from his eyes. Folks would be like, that's not how vampires work. <laughs> so how do you how do you take, uh, you know, in the midst of this 
old school renaissance like how do you also make it feel how's how are you going to make it feel modern in the magazine as well that's a good question um well for starters i guess we're playing to all the good stuff from the stuff that we found good and, and leaving some of the suspect stuff from behind Let, yeah. let's face it i mean a lot of the pulps were written by white men for white men women were often not always but were often relegated to the status of prizes to be won. And uh, people from other lands were, not always, but uh, sometimes just sort of uh, exotic throwaways or one-dimensional villains. And that's another thing. Let's talk about one-dimensional stuff. We prefer richer and deeper characters, but we also don't want to see navel-gazing. One of the things I have a problem with in a lot of modern uh, adventure fantasy is people stand around whining too much. (laughs) Or, or questioning too much. Not that there's anything wrong with questioning. Uh, we don't want our heroes leaping into action without, without thinking. But I get tired of, uh, let's just have a little bit of fun sometimes with these stories. Even if, we, right. you know, there could, be, there could be messages. I'm a big fan of the original Star Trek. There were some great messages in there. Now, I don't like the ones where they beat you over the head with the messages. But um, you can... You can have some social messages in various things, but mostly I want it to be about the adventure. And that's what we're excited about. It's about the adventure and the thrill and the excitement. So we're carrying the stuff forward that that most excites us. And leaving this stuff, it's like, uh, I don't know. That, that bit where Kirk spent like the entire secondary arc seducing that lady, that was kind of irritating. It seemed like he was talking down to her. You know, we're leaving that, leaving that behind. Not, and I keep talking about Kirk. I'm sorry. This is sword and sorcery. Conan. Oh, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. So let's talk about the magazine a little more. Can you can you give us uh, some some teasers or, you know, you have your dream team of short story writers. Who are who are some of the writers and maybe some of the works or something that you can give us? We only have space for seven writers. And uh, my dream team is much larger than that. It didn't even start as a magazine. It started as uh, Joseph contacting me to see if I wanted to uh, write a story for the uh, Gen Con uh, 2017 Goodman Games. Uh, they have these, uh, these yearly supplements they release at Gen Con. I said, sure, because I'd written one for 2016. And after I sent it to him, he says, hey, do you know some other sword and sorcery writers? I'd like to have some more. Stories to put in there. And I said, sure. Fun. And he liked those. And they said, hey, I'm thinking about releasing it as a separate supplement. Do you know any more guys? And I said, sure. And then he said, why don't we turn it into a magazine? And so I became an editor. Normally, I would not have my own story in the issue. I guess that's my way of saying, hey, I, that's why it's in there. Um, so apart from me, there's uh, Chris Wilrich who you uh, may know as a writer of great sword and sorcery fiction for, uh, uh, for uh, Pyre. But he, I knew him before that, writing these wonderful gone, uh, gone and bon- <laughs> bone and gaunt sword and sorcery tales. Uh, he has this just, uh, his style kind of reminds me of a cross between Jack Vance and uh, Fritz Leiber. And then we have uh, John Chris Hawking, who... I was this immense fan of. I was a third of the way through what I consider the greatest of the Conan pastiche writers, Conan the books, Conan the Emerald Lotus. I'm like, oh my God, this guy gets 
Sword to Sorcery. He gets Conan. I gotta meet him. And uh, we've been friends ever since. He wrote a uh, he wrote one. It's not Conan, of course. Conan's copyrighted, but it's right. a great story in there. Uh, there's my old friend Clint Warner, uh, who I knew from Warhammer. There's uh, there's many Warhammer writers I like, but I'm uh, particularly fond of uh, Clint, uh, Nathan Long, and um, uh, Bill uh, Bill King, William King. And uh, you know, I would have loved to have gotten all three of them for the first issue, but then half of it would have been Warhammer writers. That right. Fair. Um, so Clint's, Clint's in here with something. You might know him from his Brunner uh, Sword and Sorcery short stories. I love those. Uh, there's Bill Ward, who's been active in the short story circuit for a long time and who has joined me for a whole bunch of uh, read-throughs on my website. We've been working our way through Conan stories and Fritz Leiber stories and Lord Dunstan stories. And we're getting ready to do some Michael Moorcock stories and read them and, and discuss them. There's the aforementioned Aaron Rudell. Uh, who's been very active in the gaming industry and written a whole bunch of really cool stuff and uh, wrote this really creepy adventure story for the magazine. And then, of course, there's James Eng, who might be the breakout writer from Black Gate. He wrote a uh, series of six books through Pyre, and he was nominated for the World Fantasy Award, and he created this awesome character, uh, Morlock the Maker. And we've got another one of his stories. And so you're going to be launching it via Kickstarter, is that correct? The magazine coming up? That's right. Coming up very soon. And so what's the, can you tell us a little bit about the Kickstarter? Is it still in process or, or what's that going to be like? Well, it's still, it's still in process, but it'll be launching very soon. Uh, you can either be checking the Goodman Games website or my own website at, wait for it, howardandrewjones.com um, for details to see whether or not it's launched by the time this podcast is available. Oh man, that's great. I mean, just just for the title alone, really, the Tales for the Magician Skull. That's just great. Oh, you, you should see the art. I I love I love the art that um, uh, Jim Pavlek did for us the cover, and then all the internal uh, internal art is fantastic and so old school. And then just the layout and the fonts are fabulous. I, I'm just thrilled to be involved. Yeah, I, I saw the the previews that you put up on your website and just. Yeah, just a throwback old school vibe is just so much fun. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited to be involved in it. And I hope that the I really hope that the Kickstarter makes and it does well enough to get a second issue. And believe me, I would like to be bringing people tales like this for years to come. I hope they like what we put together. I'm just happy to exist. I'm just happy that that we are in a place where all this old school stuff is resonating, but it, it's it's feeling fresh and modern as well i it's a great time to be a nerd <laughs> yes sir so what else are you nerding out on besides your your editing work and your your writing what other things are you nerding out on well uh i don't know is parks and rec nerd my wife and i've been sort of power watching parks and rec which we know. absolutely yeah so that's been fun i suppose the other nerdiest thing i do is uh we're gaming some of the Sherlock Holmes consulting detective stuff, the board game, although I'm kind of running it as a game master. Uh, we're doing that every few weeks, my wife and my son and I. And then I've been running a long-term fantasy uh, RPG campaign. I guess we're going on four years now. And so which, which system is that? Pathfinder? We're using Castles and Crusades. We've used all kinds of systems over the years, including, quite obviously, I'm sure, Pathfinder. But we've uh, switched over to Castles and Crusades. Um... And we've been very happy with the system, and we're really enjoying the campaign. I'm I'm leveling the characters up very slowly, 
so that they don't get too powerful too fast. Because it seems like once you get to those upper levels, it feels like uh, a little bit of the, I don't know, magic and the threat is gone. We like the middle levels. Oh, my, uh, I always say that my favorite levels are like, you know, five through nine, somewhere in there. I love those levels. Yeah, yeah. Some of uh, some of the characters at five, and some of them are some of them are. I think we have one who's on seventh level, but everyone else is at sixth. Ah, very. And that's yeah, it's great. Yeah, that's fantastic. And that's a deep cut. Like I'm not. I I've heard of that system, but I've never played it. Oh, it it was sort of, um, you know, a lot of fifth edition feels a lot like Castles and Crusades. Like Castles and Crusades kind of got to that territory and staked it out years beforehand. I'm really looking forward to their. Um, they're coming out with an expansion pack of uh, new characters and new spells here. Um, I joined a Kickstarter for that god until late last year, so I expect to be seeing the book soon, and I'm really looking forward to it. Oh, nice. It gets you, it was familiar because it's sort of on the bones of AD&D, but it's streamlined, and the systems are uh, systems are kind of down to one mechanic so that there aren't a whole bunch of charts to flip through. And that way we can focus more on the storytelling and less on flipping through rules. And since we're, I'm in my late 40s at this point, we're not getting together as often. When we do get together, it's not for six-hour marathon sessions. We're managing a couple times a month, maybe three hours. And so the less time we have spending to look through rule books to check on things, the more time we can spend on just the story. Yeah. I like a system that can get out of the way for us. Well, very good. Man, it's been so fun to, to talk to you again. You and I have emailed back and forth, and you know we've talked about the Pathfinder Tell stuff and that sort of thing. So, And this has been a lot of fun for me. So I appreciate it, and I appreciate you know, you're talking about your, your writing and your editing work that's coming up and, and all, you know, all the work that you're doing behind the scenes. It's been a pleasure, and I tell you what, we didn't even get to nerd out about all the solitaire board games I've been playing. We'll have to talk about that again sometime. That's right. We'll hit stop on the record and we'll just keep going. All right, Howard. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. My pleasure. You take care, buddy. Thank you for listening to Nerdy Jobs. We hope you enjoy getting a behind-the-scenes look at one of the nerdy things we love. We do podcasts differently at nerdsonearth.com. We feature a variety of short-run shows, and we drop the episodes all at once, Netflix-style. We do this so that you can enjoy a variety of topics and consume them however you want to. But we track which of our shows should receive a second season. What that means is if a show meets certain thresholds and things like download numbers or iTunes reviews, then it lets us know that you want more. So, do you want more episodes of Nerdy Jobs? If so, it's up to you to let us know. And the way to do that is to leave us an iTunes review. Make sure you make note that you're casting a vote for Nerdy Jobs to get a second season, meaning more interviews with creators. Thank you so much for listening. Later, nerds.